Mark 7, 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do, you, why do your disciples not wash according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as the sovereign God of the universe. Maker of heaven and earth, you are the one who guides the planets and the stars. You are the one who orchestrates the seasons, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we come to you and we ask your providential care, Father, for um, Jane Hatfield right now as she ministers to the uh, Fuchs family, Lord, uh, little Taylor, who is 16, 17 year, uh, years old, and she is fighting for her life right now. I pro pray that you would be with their family now, and may Jane be a source of courage and encouragement and comfort in the gospel. Father, I pray as well for the Dean family this moment, uh, and I pray that you would uh, as uh, Al has been faithful for his whole life and trusting the gospel, I pray that he would be faithful in the twilight of his life, and Father, that you would comfort and strengthen their family. Father, we lift up to you all those in our congregation that are struggling with grief. Lord, this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and our relationships are severed, our bodies are torn by sickness and disease, and our governments and our world is not the way it's supposed to be. And I pray that in the midst of this suffering that the gospel would give us confidence and hope, knowing that this world is not the way it's supposed to be yet. That Christ has promised, behold, I am making all things new, and Christ is coming again to 
vanquish sin and death and to wipe away every tear and sorrow and death and pain will be no more. Father, we pray right now for the situation in Iran. We pray for the leadership in Iran. We pray for the leadership in the United States, for President Trump and for his advisors, for Congress, for our senators and our representatives, that uh, you would be honored in those offices. Father, I pray for the 176 families of this uh, plane that was downed, for 176 families that are grieving. Father, use this tragedy. May a faithful Christian be able to share the gospel to a world that does not know your truth. Father, we come to you because we don't have the answers and we lift our eyes up to the hills for we know where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And we cling to that promise this morning. In the name above all names we pray, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I don't think I could have picked a better person to do the New Testament reading. I love to hear Jerry Wade say Warsh. Uh, I think it's fabulous. Uh, so I, it was um, dumb luck that I had that, but I was like, I love that about Jerry, and uh, that just made me, uh, made me chuckle and... and uh, Thank you for serving us that way, Jerry, in, in reading God's Word. Uh, we are back in the book of Mark, and um, as we jump in, we uh, come to another turning point in the book of Mark. The uh, Pharisees and Jesus are going on a collision course. Uh, they've already uh, butt heads earlier in Mark, and now that's happening again. And what we're going to see today is another clash between different worldviews and different answers to a common problem that we have. And the question that Mark puts in front of us is how will you, not how his disciples or how the Pharisees answer it, how will you, Ocean Park, answer these questions? Now, a little bit of ways of putting some uh, background in here to be able to get the bigger picture, the foundation of this, begins with the holiness of God. Leviticus 11.45 is a foundational command of God that even Peter picks up in the New Testament, but it's this command, Leviticus 11.45, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And we sing about holiness. We, most of you probably know the hymn, I believe it's number one in our hymn book, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The great confession of Isaiah chapter 6, the, the triune God is holy. God is holy. And what holy means is that he is the creative force behind the universe who gives life to all his beings. He, God alone, is the source of all that is good and all that is beautiful and all that is true. God is pure goodness. God is pure power. God is in this world, in all of creation, 
is utterly unique from everything else. There is no one like God. God is holy. He is other. He is separate from his creation. But the problem when we sing God is holy, when we sing holy, 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 we realize we're not holy. We're not clean and pure like God is. We have a basic problem. And we realize that impure people cannot enter into the presence of the perfect, powerful, holy goodness of God because it will destroy us. Now, there are books on the market that talk about 90 minutes in heaven or I died and went to heaven. And quite honestly, the theological word for malarkey is what I apply those to. Very rarely has any Christian been brought into the throne room of God or had a glimpse of the glory of God. And when they have, they didn't go, yo, Jesus, what's up? When they got a glimpse of Jesus, they fell on their faces. And as Isaiah the prophet said, oh, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. God is so holy, and so good, and so powerful, and so pure. And when we are given just a passing glimpse of that, we fall on our faces and say, I am undone. Let me give you an example. Just to to break this down a little bit. This is the sun, or a picture of the sun. In our solar system, the sun is completely unique to everything else. The sun is pure power, is the source of light. There's nothing in our solar system that is like the sun. If NASA decided we're going to send space tours into the sun so you can go visit the sun, what would happen to this vessel as it gets closer to the sun? Sydney. It would melt. It would be destroyed. It would be undone. Why? Because we cannot come into the presence of the pure power of the sun because we are not like that sun. So you can say in our solar system, the sun is holy. And it's not just the sun itself, this burning ball of fire, but the area around the sun is holy. And we know it is not safe to go into the presence of the sun. Why? Because the sun is bad? No. The sun is actually very good. The sun is what gives us life. If the sun was turned off, we would be destroyed. But the sun is so good and so pure and such light that we know that we can't look at the sun or it will be destroyed, but we can look at all the things that the sun does and gives us. We can't sit in the sun for very long, especially those of Irish descent. You can't sit in the sun very long because it will burn us up and and it hurts us. Not because the sun is bad, but because the sun is so very good and holy and unique to all of the rest of creation 
Um, So, just as it is with God's holy presence, we who are incorruptible cannot go into the... I'm sorry, we are not incorruptible. We who are, are corruptible cannot go in the presence of the incorruptible. In the presence of the holy, something must be done. And this is where we see the grace of God. That God, realizing that we cannot be in his presence, we would be undone, gives us grace to come into his presence. God makes us ritually pure. We all are different than God, other than God, but by his grace, God calls us into his presence. And he must purify his people from the defilements of sin and death and that his people can come into his presence so God can dwell with his people and we, so we are not forever separated from God. So that ultimately, with that understanding of the holiness of God, the otherness of God, the corruptible, and we who live in a world that is tainted by sin and death, we have a problem. We can't come into the presence of God. God must make a way. He must purify his people so we can come in and not be destroyed in the presence of God. And this is the story of of God in Scripture, and this is where this climax in Mark chapter 7 is about to happen. God, uh, the Pharisees, and Jesus are now going to battle uh, how does God make us pure? How do we come in the presence of God? And I want to tell you up front, holiness is not achieved by obeying a list of rules. It is not achieved by performing a secret ritual. Holiness is not acquired by learning a secret knowledge, and it's not legislated by social reform. Holiness is not what we perform on the outside, but what Christ transforms on the inside. Holiness is not what we perform on the outside, but what Christ transforms on the inside. So, knowing that, here's the next, setting a a little Old Testament background. God, in the Old Testament, made it possible for impure people to come into his presence to be able to priest, to worship in the tabernacle, in the temple, for people to come and offer sacrifices, annually and guilt offerings what they did because they came into the presence of God and God gave what's called Old Testament purity laws some of you who have done the Bible reading and got to Leviticus and closed the Bible and say I have no idea what's going on there's a lot of death dying washing and skin diseases that's really weird But what happens is these are Old Testament purity laws that are happening, and God made his way that for people to separate themselves from living in a world of death and dying, and how they did this was that they could not touch something that was dead. And if they did, they had to wait a certain amount of time to be able to go into the presence of God. Uh, Blood, 
uh, bodily excretions, um, dead bodies, uh, skin diseases. Those are things that are associated with death, and therefore, for a certain period of time, if you touch those things, you are considered unclean, and that's not a bad thing, but being unclean and then waltzing into the presence of a holy, righteous God is a sin, and it would destroy these people. But God, by his grace, said these purity laws would allow you to put aside the death and dying of living in a world and coming into the presence of a holy God who is good and desires to bring impure people into the purity of his presence. So, a couple things. Again, a a lot of background here before we dive into the text. Uh, The first thing I want you to see, and as before we go, is Exodus chapter 30. Once uh, um, a year, or I'm sorry, let me Often the priests would go into the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was a mobile temple where the Spirit of God dwelt in the, in the, in the Holy of Holies, and um, the priests would have to go into the temple. And again, they are impure people, but they would before they would go in, they would wash themselves, wash their hands, and wash their feet from the corruption of living in a world that is broken. And here, here it is. You shall make a basin of bronze and stand with bronze for washing and put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it. And when Aaron and his sons wa- shall wash their hands and their feet, and when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. And it was, it was simply God by his grace said, wash your hands, wash your feet before you come into my presence because where you're going is holy ground. And that was the grace of God to be able to do that. These were sinful people, just like you and me, but the grace of God said, wash your feet and wash your hands and come into the presence of God. Also, another thing is that once a year that when families would give a, uh, a peace offering or a guilt offering, they would have to come before the altar of God and they all themselves would have to be pure. And it says all who are clean may eat flesh. And you're like, that's really weird. Really, if you eat barbecue, it was very similar to barbecue. You would offer your uh, sacrifice on the altar, it would be cooked, and then you would eat and celebrate and rejoice. But any person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering with uncleanliness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. So God allowed a way for ordinary men and women, common men and women, to come before the Lord and bring their offering, wash and be cleaned to be able to go into their presence that they may offer an offering to the Lord. God's grace And God's law is good, Ocean Park. And his mercies are new every morning. He enables impure people like you and I. There are no pure people in this room, most especially this pulpit. We are sinful, and we have a holy God. 
But the beauty is this, we have a God who is gracious and mercy, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love. And he knows that we are dust and he brings us by his grace into his holy presence to be able to do that. God is not a cosmic killjoy whose cruel desire is to rob you of happiness and deprive you of pleasure. There are many people who think, well, if I ever followed that Christianity thing, there would be an end to a lot of fun. It would be an end to temporary joys and fleeting desires, and it would be the beginning of knowing true, good joy. God wants you, every one of you, to flourish as you were designed, to find maximum joy, maximum love, maximum peace, which is only found in Him. Like Lewis says, we are content to go on making mud pies in the slums when a vacation at the beach is offered to us. We have no idea the joy that is found in the Lord. And when God gives us his laws and God gives us his grace, they're good. And so when the psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, why? Because it revives the soul. It brings us into right relationship with God. The testimony is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Why? Because they bring rejoicing to the heart. There is joy in that. And and here, what is the law? That, that That sounds harsh, that sounds cruel, that sounds heavy. The more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The reward of the law is what the law of God is what leads us to God. It is what brings us into the presence of a holy God where there is joy everlasting, love unending, and a peace that passes all understanding. Those of you who obey God's law enjoy his gracious law not because we want something else but the law of god brings us to god himself it tells us how to live how to live in harmony with god and with his creation he knows what we need we need him We don't need more money. We don't need better health. We don't need a better spouse. We don't need a better paycheck. We need Jesus. And the law of the God is the path that leads us to him. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our desire. Therefore, we willingly follow God's word, which is a a lamp unto our path and a light unto our way. Now, Mark chapter 7, I promise that we don't, that was not just the introduction. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, this, this conflict, this clash that happens between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees don't like this Jesus fellow and his disciples who are threatening their power and their corner of the market. And Jesus is going to mess things up for the, for the nation of Israel because Jesus in his wantous, wanton, scandalous ways is going to bring the wrath of God on, on us because the people of God are not following the traditions of the elders. 
Notice here in Mark 7, 1 and 2. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes, they had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled or common. The Greek word is koine. Uh, koinonia, remember we, we studied koinonia, uh, common, everything in common? That is unwashed. Uh, this zeal and this collision course, the, the, the uh, Pharisees immediately recognized Jesus' disciples were not following the religious rules and traditions of washing that the Pharisees and their group of teachers required of the people. And let me put a note here. This has nothing to do with hygiene. Uh, but it has everything to do with ritual purity. You're not like, ill, Peter, use some Perel before you eat the fish. It has nothing to do with cleanliness or germs. It has everything to do, are we ritually pure before we take this meal? Okay, you see that? Very much as priests going to the temple or the family going to offer, have they... Um, obtain the grace of God by washing themselves before they go into the presence of God. And the Pharisees are now saying it's not just the priests who need to wash themselves. It's not just the families at the annual feast. It's everybody has to wash themselves for every meal. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that every meal you have to ceremoniously wash. You might have to Purell, you might have to listen to your mom and go to the bathroom and wash your hands, but there's not a ceremonial washing that needs to happen. And I want you to notice how the Pharisees are moving far beyond what God has called them to do. You see this parenthetical bracket in 3 through 5 that give examples of the Pharisees and their standard of washing, uh, as they called it. Notice verse 3. It says, Un unless they wash. Now, if you might have in your Bible a little number next to that word wash, and you follow that number either to the column or to the bottom of the page, it says, literally in the Greek, it's wash with a fist. And then in verse 4, it says, and when they go to the market, they will not come back or will not eat until they wash. And you see another little number. You follow that down somewhere, and it says, unless they baptize themselves. And even Josephus, who was a historian, said sometimes that they would have to dip themselves in water to get all the filth of the Gentiles, all the filth of those people off of them before they partook of the food that they ate. There was even a historian that said there was a uh, Pharisee that was um, imprisoned in, water, in, in prison, and he was given a daily ration of food and water, and he used all his water on ritual washing, and he died of thirst. This is how rigid these people have become. Even in verse 5, it says the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They were obsessed with cleaning and pots and pans. The, the Talmud, which is a, 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 a Jewish t teaching, has 35 pages on how to wash a pot and pans and things like that. It had become so stringent that if you touched anything unclean, you would wash. 
If you touched anyone else who might have touched somebody else, you watched. And heaven forbid if you touched a Gentile or somebody that was unclean, you washed and you washed and you washed. The Pharisees became obsessed with man-made standards of purity and they traded the freedom of God for a self-inflicted bondage of human tradition that could never be satisfied. And never there was no peace, there was always doubt. Have I done enough? Have I washed enough? Have I followed the rules enough? Their religious washing, though, and I, the Pharisees often get a bad rap. It, had, it came from... A good intent. Pharisees wanted to be biblical. And they knew God is holy. And they knew they weren't holy. And so they, ha- they felt they, they had to cl- purify themselves to be worthy of coming into the presence of God. But the problem was not the Pharisees knowing that God was holy and knowing that they were not holy. The problem was the application of their good theology. See, they thought the problem was their hands and the problem was their hearts. They thought the problem of holiness was on the outside of them, but the problem was actually in their hearts. They had two fundamental problems of in there. The first problem was their hearts were distant to God, even though... <clears throat> Their hands were spectacularly clean. Notice verse 6. Andrew, would you give me a water bottle in the uh, closet across from my office, please? Verses 6 through 9. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, the the text that Kevin read for us this morning, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips. They say all the right things but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their worship is pointless. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the traditions of men. All throughout Scripture, when I was a little boy in 2 Samuel, God looks on the, or man looks on what? The outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Only God can see the hearts of man. And when God looked on the religious elite of Israel, what he saw was repulsive. No matter how much that they washed and scrubbed and bathed and pureled, they couldn't wash the revolting stench of hypocrisy away. They were nothing more than actors, and their religion measured up to be a complete and utter sham. You see, even though they said all the right things about God, they were empty words, every single one of them. They performed all, performed all the right wish rituals, but it was all for vain. They faithfully taught their traditions, but it, in teaching their traditions, they were pushing God away, and they were pulling the commandments, the useless commands of, a, of themselves closer. To the eyes of men, they looked and acted holy unto the Lord, but to the eyes of God, they were miserable, repulsive phonies. Their traditions were meaningless. Tradition is not meaningless, but their traditions were. 
Their traditions had led them away from God. Now, Ocean Park, religious hypocrisy is still very much alive today, and you don't find religious hypocrisy by the lost people at the beach and on the streets and in the workplace. Religious hypocrisy is found in the pews. Hypocrisy is a problem with the church, not with the world. This morning I had um, new members class, and you think if you were to, to put together an ideal member, this member attends every service, including special events, he, and she, or he or she comes on Sunday nights, I know some of you don't realize we have a Sunday night service, but we do, uh, Wednesday nights, they go on missions trips and they have a passion to convert the heathen, they tithe their paychecks, they read their Bible every day, they sing on the music team, they memorize scripture in the KJV because if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. They proclaim the Bible without error. They confess heaven and hell. They never get drunk. They never use profanity. And they never treat on their taxes. They devote themselves to the, fa the family. They stand for the flag and they kneel for the cross. They respond to the invitation. They raise their hands in worship. And they weep during just as I am. Brothers and sisters, that person can do all those things, but go to hell. Because religious hypocrisy destroys. You can do all those things on the outside. You can say all the right words at all the right times. You can stand when you're supposed to be standing, sit when you're supposed to be sitting, kneel when you're supposed to be kneeling. You can know all the songs. You can know all the verses, chapter and verses, but your heart can be far and distant from God. It is meaningless. It is just simply words and just simply actions. <clears throat> and you can spend eternity in hell because you are far away from God, because you embrace the traditions of man rather than the commandments of God, which brings us into the heart of God. Hypocrites focus their attention on the external measures that can be observed. I know nobody can see covetousness in my heart, so I'm going to make sure I do all the other things to make it me look like super Christian. And so I look like I've got it all together, and I'm not like those people. I'm not like the people who don't come at all the services. I'm not like the people who don't come to church, every, uh, even come to church. I'm not like the people who can't find anything in the Bible. I'm not like the people who vote Republican. I'm not like the people who vote Democrat. I'm not like the people who don't vote. I'm not like those people. I'm like this. I am a model pillar in my church. But the reality is their outside is pretty put together. But their inside is far away from God. Their worship is in vain. And their confessions are meaningless because their hearts are not desiring God. There are those of us like that in the pews this morning. And I ask you, are you one of those? 
do you teeter on that, that I have to do these things to be pure, not realizing I'm not pure. None of us are pure, but we have a good and gracious God who makes us pure and brings us into his presence, not of anything that we have done. External measures cannot quantify the purity of our hearts. It is simply a window dressing on a tomb. Not only do uh, the problem with the Pharisees and religious hypocrites have distant hearts, but they have disobedient lives, verses 10 through 30. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. The Pharisees had gotten so enamored with their traditions that they were beginning, unreal, unrecognizing the fact that they were beginning to disobey the explicit commandments of God that they claimed that they served. And Jesus gives them in this next paragraph a case study about how they are following their traditions, leading a holy, respectable life. Their hearts are far, and they're actually disobeying God, even though they say all the right words and do all the right rituals at all the right times. Notice verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, the fifth fifth commandment. And whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. God's serious about this. And the principle of the fifth commandment is crystal clear. God calls all children to honor their parents. Whether or not their parents are worthy of honor, we're called because God is our Father. Our hope is trust in Him. He gives us what we need, when we need, and the amount that we need. We can honor our earthly parents for better or for the worse. But notice in verse 11, the religious tradition and the self-righteousness, the pride, the arrogance, the churchiness before church existed, of the Pharisees in verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That is, given to God or devoted to God. Everything I own is devoted to God. You can't have it now. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The Pharisees' traditions caused them a theolo- <clears throat> created for them a theological loophole where a person could dedicate all their possessions, their wealth and their resources exclusively to God. And they called that Corbin. But they still get to keep the property and keep the resources. And in doing so, it prevented them from using those resources or giving them over to somebody else. And so what it did, and they were so staunch to do this, they said if they saw their parents in need, in destitute, they said, I can't do anything for you because this is God's money. These are God's resources. This extra room in my home, Mom, I know you're languishing in poverty and you have no source of income and a widow in the first century. I'm so sorry, but that room's the Lord's room and you can't have it. Makes you mad, right? Makes you angry. 
Religious hypocrisy is very easy to detect in other people, but it's almost impossible to see in your own life. Pride is that way. It's like carbon monoxide gas, odorless, tasteless, and you can't see it, but it's deadly. Pride and religious hypocrisy will do this. Ocean Park, we look at the Pharisees and we scoff. How could they not see the log that's hanging in their eye? This is ridiculous. How could they continue with such such hypocrisy? How could they not see their flagrant disobedience that just doesn't get it? Every generation has massive uh, blind spots that are created by sinful pride and self-deception. We convince ourselves that we, can act, we act more holy and I can become more holy. We convince ourselves that we can do, outwork our neighbor to earn God's favor. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a, it's a spiritual fake it until you make it at, and, and act holy until you actually become holy. But the scripture says this is ridiculous. I'm going to go in and I'm going to sing the songs. I'm going to read the, read the books. I'm going to give the offering. I'm going to attend the service. I'm going to sit when I'm supposed to sit and stand when I'm supposed to stand and kneel when I'm supposed to kneel. I'm going to follow all the rules. And if I do that stuff, God will accept me and I'll get blessings and I'll be holy. And that's good because that guy next door, he's not holy and I need to get a little bit more holy than him because I can point to him when the judgment comes and said, I'm not like my neighbor. I'm not like my crazy uncle. I'm holy. I did, you know, I sang. I know where Amazing Grace is in the hymnal. I can find Genesis. Ocean Park, there are no spiritual traditions, whether it be Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian or Mormon or Muslim, that, you, that can change your heart. You can't say enough penance. You can't walk enough aisles. You cannot learn enough catechism. You can't serve on enough missions. And you cannot fulfill the five pillars enough. It won't change your heart, it won't uh, make you holy, and it won't give you life. We cannot make ourselves holy, and we can't give ourselves spiritual life. When I was in high school, my parents would go to New York City, uh, go see a play or something like that, and they would often come home and bring me a gift, uh, one of those little uh, Statue of Liberty things, one day, I remember, they came home with a Tag Heuer watch. Now, if you ever Google a Tag Heuer watch, you're talking a couple thousand dollars, and I even saw 26,000 big ones. My mom got it for 10 bucks on the streets of New York City. I mean, that is a deal, okay? I seriously thought I was hot stuff. Uh, there was a problem that every day my watch was a little too slow. And um, I had to fix it every day to make it right. And one day I noticed that the, the watch itself had completely stopped. And as I looked at it, I said, that's funny. The Tag Heuer emblem had unglued and had stuck between the minute hand and the second hand. That watch was a fake. And it wasn't even worth the $10 my mom had paid. Ocean Park, our attempts at being holy on our own are like that fake watch, absolutely worthless. 
We can dress ourselves up with all sorts of traditions that appear righteous and holy compared to those around us, but they are absolutely worthless if our heart is not desiring God. And knowing that we, God is holy and we are not, and we need the grace of God. The first time, the hour I first believe, today and every day. We cannot enter the holiness of God with unclean hearts. It's dangerous. We need a radical change. Resetting the uh, minute hand on the clock will not do it. Religious traditions will not do it. Education and culture will not do it. Political revolutions will not do it. Voting in the other guy will not do it. Social reforms, as much as we need it, will not do it. There is only one answer to our problem of unholiness, and that's called regeneration or called being born again. And there is no power in the world that can make your bad heart good or your unclean heart clean. And that's the good news that the gospel tells us, is that we were dead. And now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're found. I was blind and now I see. Why did this wretch be, why did that wretch experience that? God's amazing grace, unearned favor of God, nothing that we did. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is not a tradition or all the traditions that can make us holy and safe in the presence of a holy God. It's only God's grace changing our hearts. We need a new heart that will be purified and is promised in Ezekiel fulfilled in the new covenant, which we will celebrate at the table today. I will give you what? A new heart. Something we can't do. We can't give ourselves heart transplants. Jesus has to give us a new one. And I'll give you a new spirit and I'll put it within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your heart of flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And later in Ezekiel says, which is beautiful, I will wash you with clean water and you will be clean. We need a resurrection. Romans chapter 6, did you not, all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death, we were buried with him by his baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We may be holy as he is holy. Because the life that we live, we live by faith. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. The, the behold, new has come. Brothers and sisters, the gospel brings a radical change. It brings a new birth, a new heart, a new creation. It brings a resurrection. And apart from Christ, we are desperately wa- uh, lost. We cannot go into the presence of a holy God. It is not safe. It is dangerous. Not because God is a, a merciless tyrant, but because he is so good and it would destroy us to go into his presence. We 
must come to Christ, trusting his grace, trusting his work on the cross, trusting his resurrection. We cannot polish the outside. We cannot follow the traditions. We cannot educate ourselves. We cannot do purely good things. And none of those things would change us because our hearts need to be changed by Christ, to be transformed. We need Christ's life. We need his holiness. We need Christ's transformation because nothing else will do. I ask you if you don't know Jesus, but you've been trying awfully hard to be really good, but your goodness is as fleeting as your New Year's resolutions. Your goodness, uh, though you know God is good and you are not, you've tried so hard, stop. The promise of the gospel is Jesus has did it all. Jesus paid it all. We trust the promises of God that says all who come to the cross and trust the work of Jesus will be saved. And for those of you who have trusted Jesus with your life, day in, day in out, say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to be holy. Help me walk into newness of life. Pour your spirit into me. Convict me. Lead me. That I may honor Christ in my life and be holy as he is holy.